0: Hello and welcome to the Honest Property Investment Podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I am the host of this podcast. Welcome back. I'm so excited you're back with us today. I am doing another throwback episode. But first, I'm going to keep telling you about this because I really do believe you need to go and get it. Uh, my crossing over to commercial free e course is all for you, residential property investors who want to get into the world of commercial property. If you haven't yet joined crossing over to commercial property, I don't know why. Go to ncrealestate.co.uk forward slash crossing over to commercial, sign up, and you will get everything that you need to know how to cross over to commercial property from investing in residential. Today, we're doing another throwback, as I just said, and it's all about 25 ways to find money for a deposit. This was such a succinct podcast when I put it together with Daniel Woods that I thought I would bring it out again so that you can go through it. It does what it says on the tin. So without further ado, let's jump into that podcast. Okay, everybody, very excited today. I have got Daniel Wood from Momentum Property on the podcast. Hi, Daniel.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. Today, we're going to be talking all about the 25 sources of investment finance, right? And where to find it.
1: Exactly, exactly. And these are actually 25 ways to fund a deposit. So this is in addition to your bridging loans, your regular mortgages, and all that kind of fun stuff.
0: Oh, I'm excited about this. So Daniel, give me a little bit of your background about you being in property investment. Where did you start? Where do you invest? Tell me about you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I'm, uh, I'm from Sweden. I'm born, raised and live here. Um, I apologize for my accent. It's my dad's fault. He's from the US, <laughs> uh, but I'm Swedish. And uh, we, me and my wife, Gisela, uh, we started our journey together. And it really came around when our, when our oldest son was born. We realized that when we are going to drop him off at daycare, he would actually be spending more time with his teachers than he would be with us. And it was just an insight we had when he was born. And we said, well, we got to do something different. You know, we, we can't have that. And that's when we started exploring different investment types. We we got into property. We looked at the Swedish market, but the Swedish market is very, very regulated. So we realized that it's it would be too hard to invest here. So we said, no, let's Let's look internationally. We looked at Spain, Germany, France, and we landed on the UK. So we went to, we got ourselves a mentor in the UK and uh, you know, we paid a bunch of money for the education and we got a lot of help. We started our company, we started out, but there was one problem with the mentor we got and it was that he was British at uh, present company, uh, apologies, uh, <laughs> Now nothing wrong with that it was British. The problem was he had invested a stone's throw from his office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whenever he was running a project, he would take a walk and walk and see, hey, the builders aren't here. I'll send them a text and see what's happening. And it, he didn't really realize the difference it was to be, you know, a thousand miles away. And, uh, well, we got we got into a lot of trouble because of it. We weren't running the properties, the projects properly in the beginning. We weren't doing all the all the due diligence we should. I know you talk a lot about researching people, Natasha, and that is something we talk about because I got ripped off for 400,000 pounds when we started out. Yes, it was horrible and it wasn't our money. We'd raised this from investors, (gasps) which actually makes it even worse. And I I got a call from our accountant who says, um, Daniel, it's time to bankrupt your company. And I know that's bad in the UK, but I'll tell you, it's even worse in Sweden. In Sweden, that's the kiss of death. You're done as an entrepreneur forever. And so I say, well, what does that mean? He says, well, basically what we'll do is we'll write off all the debt, we'll set up a new company for you, and you start over. And I said, wait a second, that, that does sound pretty good. Tell me more. <laughs> but, that, but then I did ask, so if I'm not paying this debt, who, who is And he said, well, your investors are probably not going to see much of their money back. So I realized, well, okay, so you're not asking me to start over. You're asking me to throw everyone else under the bus. And he said, well, yeah, I guess that's another way of looking at it. I said, well, we're not doing that. I don't know how. I don't know how we're going to turn this business around, but somehow we're going to. And that's where we got really, really lucky uh, because we were running an event company in Sweden at the same time where we're bringing speakers from all over the world. And uh, we uh, right at that time, we had Kim Kiyosaki. Keynote, our Empowered Women event. And as the host of the event, you get to actually meet and talk to the, to the speakers. So we, we took her out to dinner and we actually got to know her really well. We told her about our journey and she gave us some amazing tips and in, insight to how to ter, turn the business around. And she actually became an informal mentor to my wife, Gisela, and they jumped on multiple calls. We're actually partners today. We've translated the cash flow game into Swedish, which has been really cool. Um, but, but she helped us out. We worked a lot with the Tony Robbins organization. I mean, I speak on Tony Robbins behalf through success resources today, but so they helped us out a lot and, and we were able to turn the business around. It was really hard. I mean, I'd had tough conversations with the investors explain they were not going to get the upside that we'd hoped for, but we were going to make sure they got their money back and, you know, kind of a, a, a small profit just to say that they walked away with a profit, but, uh, it was a tough journey and we, since then, we we did. It took probably a hundred property deals before we've been able to kind of turn around and, and kind of get back on our feet. Uh, so it was a tough start. So that that's why I'm I'm 100% pro what you say about doing due diligence on people, making sure you have the right people around you, getting the right support. And and I still believe though you need to get a mentor. And yes, I mean I think my first mentor did did really well with the tools that he had. There were some things, tools he didn't have, and he shouldn't actually have been my mentor. Um, but I, it was these other people that helped us out. You know, I, I mentioned Kim and Tony because they're the two most famous ones, but there are literally dozens of people that have been in and helped us and supported us and helped us turn our business around. And without their help, we, we probably would have been bankrupt today or guaranteed we would have been bankrupt today. So uh, that's been a journey, but what it did is it forced us to be creative, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's why we kind of identified 25 different ways you can fund a deal now because we couldn't just tap that one source of finance because we had to figure out more ways to to get around it. And I've been blessed to get to know a lot of the, the leaders and kind of the property industry in the UK are, are my friends today. So I talk to them a lot about how they structure their deals. Uh, for example, me and Simon Zucci have done a lot of clubhouses together. We talk and, you know, we've been able to help each other out. I do uh, with uh, you know Ben Chai is a good friend of mine Shimon Rudish a lot of different people who have different insights and aspects into property and have uh, have helped me in in finding new ways to structure deals. So it's been it's been a very exciting journey, and uh, yeah, I'd be happy to share the different sources that that we've identified.
0: Okay, all right, so let's go. Yeah, over to you. Start <laughs> at the beginning. Give Start us the twenty five sources.
1: Yeah. So I'll run through them quickly because it does take a while if we're going to talk (laughs) about them all. So I'll let you ask questions about the ones that you find interesting. And they, they, they truly vary from, you know, boring to classic to really exciting and out there. So there's, there's kind of something for everyone. So I'll start with the kind of the classic one that most people use, which is just bringing in an angel investor, offering them a fixed percent interest. That's a classic way of doing it. And, uh, I don't think a lot of people talk about you should bring on investors at a 10% interest. I think that is madness. That will kill your property company if anything goes wrong. Because you know the whole thing about property investing is about the compound effect, right? We're getting the compound effect on our side. But if something goes wrong and your return goes down to 8%, if you're paying someone 10%, all of a sudden the compound, the compound effect is working against you and it can kill your business. That was one of the big problems we had. So be smart about that one. What Kim Kiyosaki recommended me to do was a, another concept that I'll, I'll share in a moment. But the second source that we use is joint ventures, basically where one party will bring the deal, the other party will bring the money, and you partner. So I love, and what I love doing is I love being the middle person there. So I'll get the deal from one contact, I'll get the money from another, and then I take a cut of the entire pie for just putting it together. that's a very efficient way of doing it. And the third way, which happens to be Kim Kiyosaki's favorite is a combination of the two, where you offer a low percent fixed interest, and then you offer a a percent of the upside. So that, uh, you know, if something goes wrong, they, the investor walks away with a profit, but it would be very, very small. If the deal goes well, though, they can get very, very wealthy. So it's kind of a win-win for everyone and it reduces your risk while increasing their upside. So that's Kim's favorite and and one we've used successfully as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. So those are three kind of classic ways of going at it. Uh, But then there are other ways. You can do an equity raise, essentially create new shares in your company and, and sell that to investors, bring in on capital. That's a fun way of doing it. And depending on how you structure it, it can actually give the investor different tax benefits when they invest through that. But obviously talk to your accountant or tax solicitor or so if you're gonna look at those options. Um, You can use peer-to-peer financing or crowdfunding. So that's number five and six, where you get, uh, well, essentially where you have groups of people that can put a loan together or they can do it as a joint venture. They can basically use the three setups that we use with regular investors. Just that instead of you raising the finance, there are platforms that can do this for you, which has been very, very efficient. It's something I use a lot. Um, Now let's get into the first like really creative one, one that I've been working on for a while myself, is that you can actually create a cryptocurrency. So you could create your own property-backed cryptocurrency and and work with that. Uh, (laughs) What do you say, Natasha? Would that be fun?
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, don't you have to be reg- don't you have to have regulation to have your own cri- crypto cu- currency? What's the What's the FCA say about it?
1: Definitely, I mean, in all of these cases, you should always make sure to talk to you know solicitors, accountants, tax advisors. Make sure you have yours has it, have it done correctly. But there are mm-hmm. companies that are specialising now on offering that entire package now, where they'll help you get FCA approved. They'll help you launch the cryptocurrency. They'll even help you market it to raise finance. So as long as you do it right, it can be brilliant.
0: And so how does that work then? So you are offering people to buy your cryptocurrency. And what value does the cryptocurrency hold?
1: Well, so there are lots of different ways of structuring it. I'm actually in the the due diligence phase on a concept right now. So there are different types of cryptocurrencies. There are security tokens there are you know there are asset backed ones but there are also ones that offer different kinds of discounts and then there are others that are what's called stable coins that are kind of tied to a direct value so there, there are so many different ways of doing it and there are different ways to profit from a cryptocurrency so one way of doing it could be essentially structuring it essentially like a bond where you or you know like a loan where they would invest they would buy a certain number of cryptocurrencies and that allows them to you know get a percentage return over time where they would get uh, commissions uh, you could also structure it as as a fund where they're a part of the pool of of the investment or you could do it as a stable coin where essentially you would have to have you know if you raise a hundred thousand pounds, you have to ha- own then a hundred thousand pounds worth of property. So it becomes tied or it depends on how big the backing. A lot of these stable coins only have 50 to 70% backing. So you could do that. And then your profit would be that it's used in transactions and you make a transaction fee as, lo- as well as the rents. And you'd offer back a percentage of that would go to the community um, at- for holding the coins. There are a lot of creative ways of doing it but as you say you got to make sure you have the legal side correct because this is that's one of the hard parts about raising finance is it is so easy to go wrong and a lot of people skip that part of the lesson and it's really really important that you have the right advisors helping you with that
0: and so with with using cryptocurrency how, are you, how do you sell that though? Where, what platform would you put that on? And do you need to check what type of investor you're selling that to?
1: Well, so it depends on your, your experience with it now. So there are different ways to go about it. You could do it as a private round where you would only go to you know, certified um, high net worth or sophisticated investors. And you would essentially use the, the cryptocurrency in, in, instead of shares. And you'd okay. use that. Um, but another way of doing it is, and which if you're new to cryptocurrency, but you're excited to explore it, it's probably better to talk to one of the companies that specializes in the whole package. And one of the things they can do is they can help you do a property, a proper, you know, round and and launch of the cryptocurrency, which which can raise a lot of money in itself. So it all it all depends on what you're looking at and, and what process you're going through.
0: Okay, and then I guess the, the benefit of that is that you can then trade cross-country. Would that be the reason you would do it over getting, raising money through shareholders?
1: Well, there, now, really, I would say the reason you use crypto is because it's just so trendy. I mean, you see now when, when new cryptocurrencies are created, people are literally throwing themselves at it and they're throwing so much money into things that really they have no idea what it is. So if you're actually providing a quality product in that industry, I think that would be good for that industry to have that kind of a product come out. But also in in a more egotistical sense, it's just very easy money because people are just, you know, oh, it's a new cryptocurrency. Obviously, it's going to go to the moon. Let's throw our money in. So it's, it's, <laughs> there's a bit of both. But I think if you're providing an actual quality product into that industry, I think that would be That would be a benefit, which is why I'm not just keeping it to myself, even though I'm looking at a project like that. I think if more people create quality cryptocurrencies, that might help stabilize that that crazy volatile market.
0: And does it cost a lot to set up?
1: Yes, it probably would cost you a certain amount, but you would be able to fund a lot of that through the actual launch itself. It's kind of like when you're setting up a fund, um, which is another one of the strategies is you can actually get a lot of the costs in a, associated with opening a regulated fund. You can actually draw that from the fund itself. Okay. okay. So, uh, so you don't necessarily have to spend the money, but it will cost the money.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. Next.
1: Yep. <laughs> So yeah, like I said, that's a more creative one. We're gonna go straight to a little boring one now, and that's your own capital. So if you have money, that's the easiest way to fund a property deal. But uh, you can also use, you know, you can take a home mortgage, you know, you can mortgage your home, um, and you can use something called a cash advance, which means you can, uh, if you have a credit card, you do technically, you've been approved for a loan, you can actually pull that money out and use, Now, I want to say right away, whenever you're using anything that's based on you personally or your personal credit, be incredibly careful. I mean, if you're going to mortgage your home, if you're going to pull, and especially with a cash advance or the next one, which is a consumer mortgage you're putting your credit on the line. So it's really, really important that you know what you're doing. Don't do that on your first deal. You know, make sure you know what you're doing before you use that type of a strategy. And I think that goes whenever you're using a credit card, you know, make sure you know what you're doing. Don't max out your credit cards, whether it be for you know, just personal use for a property or education or anything, even education, I should say. Uh, I think use money that you can afford to lose in any in any part of this. But that's just my 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 mm-hmm. thought.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agreed.
1: Uh, so that's the first 10. Then we get into kind of fun, fun ones where you can work with investment companies. There are a lot of investment companies. They A lot of them invest in stocks and shares, but a lot of them want to put a, a part of their portfolio into property. And they often need someone to be their partner there to either provide the property deals or manage the property deals or run the property portfolio. And that can be you and you can take a cut of that upside. So that's a really good way of doing it. And you can, well, this one is harder to get into. This is when you get a little further, that's working with banks. Banks will have their largest clients have what's called private banking or private placement and there, the bank is literally looking for quality investments. They offer venture capital, they buy, offer you know, special uh, investment products, and they offer property investments. And again, just like with the investment company, someone's got to provide those property projects. So that could be you. Now, it's not always easy to get in with a bank. So some of these ideas come a little further down the line. But there are a lot of banks out there. Some are larger, some are smaller. You might not get in with Lloyd's right away, but there are smaller banks that you could that you could approach and maybe one day work with. And the next level up, if you look at personal wealth, is called family offices. So if a individual or family has at least 30 million pounds of assets or euros of assets, it varies a little bit they can set up what's called a family office, which means they'll have a whole team of people that handle their finances. Often they provide concierge services and other services as well, but they'll handle their investments. One of the things family offices do, they have a very long-term investment approach generally. So they're looking for safe, stable returns over time. And they often look to property and they often look to partner with people who know what they're doing in property. So uh, I had a friend of mine who does a lot of work with family offices and they they reached out to him and they said, well, look, or they had a meeting and they said, look, our, our client is interested, but we want to start with a smaller sum. I hope that's OK. And he said, well, sure. How, how much is a smaller sum? He said, well, we thought we'd start with five million euros and then we'll go from there. Uh, so they play at a little slightly different level from the rest of us when dipping your toes is 5 million and a big investment is a couple extra zeros onto that. That's the kind of a game that the family offices are playing. So if you get in with a family office, that might be enough for, for your entire investment career. Um, and then there's also something. So now we're up to number 15. So we're, we're getting close. Number 15 is bank placement. Basically, the bank invests a lot of their own money. That's a big part of what banks do. It's just like insurance companies. A lot, the big part of what they do is they want to invest. And uh, they try to make profits from, uh, from you know, they, they get money from the government or from the central bank, and they lend it out to you, and then they get interest, and then they're investing that money. Any money that's in their accounts is being invested. And uh, one of the sources they use is property. And again, someone has to provide those properties or run them. So that could be you. Um, Next, it could be funds, you know, pension funds, real estate funds, same situation there. They love property and they need to put the money into there. Uh, We already mentioned the next one. You could set up your own fund. So that's one as well. And there are people that work as specialists in helping to raise money for funds or for cryptocurrencies, as we talked about. Uh, We also shortly mentioned a bond. We've actually done that for uh, we we are me and Gisela were the founding investors of a golf resort in South Wales, and uh, we've recently done a bond issue on that resort project. So we've created a five million pound bond, and uh, so essentially that's a loan. You just put it on the open market, so it's on the bond market. Think of it as the stock market, and people can invest into it. So instead of me having to call up individual investors and say, hey, do you wanna borrow this money? We put it on the market and then people can invest. So it's a, it does take that you are, that, that entity we have is an FCA regulated entity, which is required for us to be able to create that bond. So mm-hmm. it, everything depends on, on what level, level you're playing out there. Uh, the next thing you could do is uh, work with companies actually. And do we have a time for a short story about this? Because this is a bit of a fun story. Yeah, go for yeah. sure. it. All right, cool. So number number uh, 19 here is company loans. And so when I was, I was 14, 15 years old, I got my, actually my second job, but it was my first job that I really was, was working at. And my job was to call people in their house. I was a telephone sales rep. I was one of those horrible people. <laughs> But what I was calling people to do was I was actually inviting them to come to seminars on investing. So I've kind of come full circle since, (laughs) but I was calling individuals and it turned out that 15-year-old me was pretty good at it. And so I got promoted to start calling companies. And so here I was, I was a a 15-year-old kid and I was calling CEOs and CFOs of publicly listed companies in Sweden and I was basically saying, hi, my name is Daniel Wood. I work for this company. And I, I'm, I suspect you're mismanaging your cash account. <laughs> A cocky little brat, but this was the script I'd been given. And basically what it turned out and what I learned while doing this job was the CEO doesn't have his eye generally on the cash account. They're focusing on the team, the growth, the p and building the company. So they've delegated this to the CFO. But with publicly listed companies, the CFO, the finance manager, the chief finance officer is always having to prepare the next quarterly report. So the money that's sitting there in the account often doesn't really get dealt with. And what happens is a portion of that goes reinvested into the business. That's the part the CEO cares about. A part of it gets paid out into dividends, which is the part the CFO cares about. But a part of it just sits there and starts accumulating on the balance sheet. And no one really does anything with it. Yes, it might be put in, you know, into a short-term bond or a short-term low savings. But what I was doing was I was inviting these companies to come to this. This was a, a fund company in Sweden where they would present different investment options that they could use this cash account and put that into. And that is actually something we can do today. I mean, if I could, at 15 years old, create interest with publicly listed companies, I'm sure anyone who's smart enough to be listening to this podcast could call up companies in their area and say, hey, are you actually managing the funds in your in your company account? Are you actually getting a benefit from that? And most of them will say, no, I got my bank account with HSBC or Barclays or NatWest or whoever, and I'm getting 0.00% interest. I'm not making a thing. And you say, well, look, I can create different, investment products for you where you can be with me for a short or a long-term time, and we can actually make your cash account profitable. Now, make sure, as always, have your accountants, your team, and so giving you the advice so you create correct products so you're not giving bad advice. But the good thing is when you're working with companies, it's a lot less regulated than when you're working with individuals. So it's also much easier to get in with them. And what's exciting is all of a sudden now you have a whole company that every single employee is working to get you more money to invest because their job is to make the company profitable Mm -hmm. and that profit will go to you. So that's a pretty fun one. Um, Another tool you could use is a credit line or overdraft. It can be hard to get in an investment company. But if you've listened to uh, Richard Branson's um, biographies, he built Virgin on using an overdraft facility. That was essentially how he built the company. He was always on the negative and then he would get money in and he would come back to zero. He wouldn't have a lot of plus, he would keep going into the negative. So that is a tool to use, but with anything where you're going into debt, be careful, be smart about it, but it is a tool you can use. Mm-hmm. So there, that's 20. That's twenty. We got five to go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> number, number 21 is, is one of our students' favorites where, Because a lot of this can feel daunting. A lot of this can feel tough. There are so many different tools. There are so many different ways to go at it. One thing you can do is you can outsource it. There are literally people who work as professional money sourcers. We mentioned that with ICOs. We mentioned that with funds. Um, But there are people who work specifically with raising finance. You can often find them on LinkedIn, but you got to do your due diligence because there are money sourcers and there are money sourcers and that there is a difference. So make sure you're actually working with reputable firms or reputable companies. But there are people that work with high net worth individuals from all over the world, and they're desperately looking for things for them to invest in. Mm -hmm. And by partnering with them, you can get someone else to do all this work with raising finance for you. There are also consultants that can help you with if you should create a bond issue, if you should create a fund and can help you and advise you. Obviously, they'll charge you a retainer, but if they know what they're doing, it can be worth it. When you get to the next phase, when you get big enough, you could actually do an IPO. So that can be a great way to raise money, to do an initial public offering, put your company on the stock market. That can help you raise a massive amount of money, but you gotta have gotten to a point first. Um, You can uh, can get a grant, so that's a simple one. You can get grants uh, to help you with your project uh, from the local council and then you can use a company loan so uh, for example i have my accounts in in my company with hsbc and they'll actually allow me if i want to to take a second charge on my properties where they'll help me release more but they can also give me a completely unsecured loan which we've used in, in at times an unsecured loan in that company that just allows us to get cash if we need to push a project over the line so that is a it's a tool available, but again, use it smartly. And finally, the last one is a bit of a double, double, it is foundations. So you could potentially set up a foundation of your own that for example, is aimed at helping homeless people get somewhere to live, which essentially means you could buy property, put it into social housing in that foundation and you could raise money to it and it would go to a good cause. That wouldn't benefit you that much personally but it would allow you to build your experience, build your brand. And obviously you could pull a salary for doing it, but you know, don't go excessive because then you miss the whole point of of doing good through a foundation. But the other part of foundations is that foundations raise massive amounts of money. And most of them don't wanna give away all that money at once because they wanna be long-term. They wanna be able to continue. Uh, One example would be, think of the Nobel prize. The Nobel prize is the Nobel prize foundation. What they do is they invest their money and then a portion of the profits from their investment is what is given out as the Nobel prize. And so when the Nobel prize was created, it wasn't a lot of money. I think it was like $10,000 at the start. Now it's up to a million dollars and even more when you give it out per prize. So you can imagine how much money they've invested to be able to make enough profit to give out 1 million to each prize winner. and, And I believe last year was even more. So you could talk to them because, well, maybe not the Nobel Prize Committee, but there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of foundations in every country all over the world. And they, just like regular companies, have a cash account that needs to be invested. And again, why, wouldn't, why shouldn't that be you? So That is a tool. So that was number 25. So those are sources that we've identified. I'm sure the creative listeners here of your show can come up with more, but those are the ones we look at, use and study.
0: Okay. So let me ask you then out of all of those 25, which are regulated and which aren't, you know, what, oh, all right. where yeah, do you need to be question. a regulated firm and where don't you need to be a regulated firm?
1: Well, as, as a general, everything depends on your size. So if you become big enough, it, all of them need you to be regulated. So for example, just take the look at the first one, bringing on an angel investor. What they, it, it, There are gray zones here. I've spoken to FCA consultants about this, like how are you allowed to raise? And there, no one seems to have a fix, like this is the this is where it's unregulated, here's where it's regulated. Essentially, if you're raising money from friends and acquaintances, then and family then you're kind of good to go you can raise but as soon as you start doing more public raises and going out you have to be regulated Mm -hmm. and the same goes for for most of these now company raise when you're working with other companies that is generally unregulated because companies are considered to be you know smart and sophisticated enough that they don't need to be protected the same thing is if you're working with high net worth or sophisticated investors you can do more with them than you can with regular individuals because they are considered smarter investors and they can take their own responsibility. So it depends on who it is you're targeting, but the ones where you're guaranteed. So like I said, I've talked to people who are actually educated to know this, right? We, we have a panel of experts that we work with that advise us on this. So for our students, we don't tell them to run out and do Uh, create a bond issue, we tell them talk to these people and they'll help you. So that's an important point is don't don't just take what I'm saying here in this episode Mm -hmm. and go, well, Daniel Wood said I could raise funds from friends and family all I want, I'm gonna go do it. Talk to experts and make sure that you get that advice. And not just people who've been in the industry, actual people that are certified and can sign a, a piece of paper saying that you can do this meaning a lawyer, a solicitor, an FCA regulated entity uh, that is a consultant for it. But overall, you know, you need to do it if you're gonna do an ICO, uh, if you're gonna create a cryptocurrency, you need to, if you are gonna set up your own fund, you need to be, if you're gonna do a bond issue, um, those are the, well, an IPO. Well, actually, no, not an IPO. You wouldn't have to be FCA regulated, I believe, but that would be other regulations that would come into play. So those are the ones where you're really doing it. But whenever you're working with private individuals, there there is always issue if you're not an FCA regulated and approved entity.
0: Mm -hmm. All of you listening, please don't go and raise money from your friends and family without them self-certifying that they're a sophisticated or a high net worth investor. You can find all of that on the FCA website. Please, 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 please protect yourself because the FCA are looking into this. So... None of you go out and just borrow the money. Please go and get the self certification. You have to have new self certification every 12 months. Make sure you're doing that. Very good. So, yeah,
1: exactly. You have to be careful about these things because it's so there, there's so many that's just saying go out and raise the money. We, ha- we make sure we always have a panel of experts that will advise our students on it because you can get in big trouble raising money uh-huh. the wrong way can get you in big trouble. We've just walked through 25 different ways you can do it. Now it helps if you do it legally.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, because the you know even going out onto social media and posting, I'm raising money and I can get you higher returns on my property portfolio than you would in the bank. Don't say that. Please go and make <laughs> sure that you're getting um, it checked. I need you to make sure that you are very aware of that because if you're not, don't start raising money. Go find your FCA Well, that, That's so good <laughs>
1: advice. And I'll, I'll give an actual example of that is how important the, the language is. We're, we're literally doing, it. I mean, our, our golf resort is an FCA regulated entity. And we're doing a raise, an equity raise on it, where we see that the return per annum is going to be about 100% per year. So when we, we said, you know, we're going to be, we want to do this, we, we want to raise money and we want to tell people that they're going to make this return. The the FCA consultant said, well, you legally cannot say that you will do 100 percent per year. The maximum you're ever allowed to offer is 25 percent. And we said, well, how are we supposed to offer 25 percent when our prognosis is we're going to make 100 percent per year? And they said somehow you got to cap it. Either you got to slow down your you got to slow down your project's growth. <laughs> was essentially what they told us. And we said, well, we don't want to do that. Is so we had to go back and figure it out. And what we finally ended up doing was we could not give away common shares on an on a regulated raise. We had to create a special type of share, a uh, preferred stock that includes a buyback option that caps the return at twenty five percent which allows us to say this is a max 25% investment because there is a cap. So even there, when the deal, the prognosis is there, all the numbers are there. We're already ahead of that schedule from the first round. We've, we've been doing over 100% per year, which is brilliant. We're super happy, obviously. But we're not allowed to say it to investors. We actually had to cap the return because otherwise it would have been a, an illegal raise and we would have gotten in big trouble. So I definitely agree. Do not put any, <laughs> don't put stuff on social media and just go, hey, I'm raising money. This is what it is. You can talk about yourself as a property investor. You can showcase the deals you're you're doing. But if you add the phrase, talk to me, I I, you know, I'm raising money, send me a PM or I offer X percent. That's where you get really, really dicey really, really quickly. So and, and just out of experience, you don't have to put that call to action there. Showcase you as an expert. Teach people about what you're doing. They will reach out anyway. And if you have a good team behind you, they can help you, advise you. How do you then talk to people when they reach out?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's really a really good piece of advice. So what is your personal favorite way of raising finance? You've given us 25. What do you like doing
1: well, it's hard to best pick one. Uh, <laughs> the two I use most often, I should say, is uh, it's joint ventures. Mm-hmm. I love bringing people together and, and just taking a cut of the deal. Uh, that works really, really well. It, uh, it allows them to work together, allows me to take a, a lower risk. Again, it's got to be structured correctly. But if you structure it correctly, it's a, very, it's a very beautiful setup because you have one party bringing the deal. You have another part bringing the money and I just sit there in the middle as the introducer and then I maybe take 20% of the deal. That's, uh, that's my, my favorite.
0: 20% of the deal.
1: Yeah, wow. and, and everyone's happy. So um, it's, it's a great deal for both parties. You know, They get 40% or so each and I get my cut so everyone is happy about it. <laughs> I do always say though that I don't get paid a, a dime until the investors have gotten all their money back. So mm-hmm. I do put myself in a position behind them, which kind of, you know, that that butters up the deal a little bit and it makes it safer for them, which is important. And the other one I use a lot is a crowdfund. We've got a great partnership with a crowdfunding platform that, that we use that allows me to finance um, a big chunk of our property costs, uh, total project costs and everything. So that's something we've used for our last few developments uh, very successfully. So that's been a very, very... Tool
0: and for us. do you through crowdfunding do you 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 can raise a hundred percent of the deal so you're raising the deposit as well?
1: almost we mm. uh, we can cut co- well actually we can cover a hundred percent of the purchase a portion of the refurb and a portion of all our fees but we do need to put some skin in the game ourselves. so generally that will vary depending on the deal depending on the quality of the deal that will vary between five and twenty percent mm-hmm. we need to put in ourselves. But, uh, you know, if you can get your project 95% pro- funded, including all the fees and, and everything from a regulated entity, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so how long does it take you to fund a deal?
1: Again, that depends on the deal. It depends on the size. Um, but... Well, now we work a lot with the crowd fund. There are there are obviously hoops we need to jump through to to get there. So from the time we start our application to it's done, it uh, usually takes a couple of weeks, and then the fundraise itself takes a few more weeks. So it might take us six to eight weeks from from start to end uh, when we use the crowdfund. When we use the investors, uh, again, it varies and it depends on you know what the interest is, what the availability is and, uh, and, and, you know, and the deal obviously, but sometimes it goes really quickly. Other times it's taken over six months to get a project fulfilled. filled. Um, so the, the important part then is, you know, we need to fund So a lot of projects. We have a funding plan that goes in stages and, you know we always hope to fund the entire project right away. And then we don't have to think of the stages but other times it's taken six months to just, you know fund the stages and occasionally you have that stress where it's like whoa we got three weeks to hit this stage otherwise we're gonna you know we're gonna start bouncing checks and that's where it's good to have an, an alternative plan an alternative source of funds so that we you know so that I can kind of cover that shortfall if, if we are so you always got to think through your projects structure them right and make sure you don't get in trouble.
0: How have you found it with the cost of uh, construction going up? over the last couple of months and there being such a tough demand for supplies, wood, plaster. Have you had to factor that into your developments?
1: Yeah, we, we have. Um, I think the good news is that the property values have gone up a lot as well. So it's letting our, it's, it's causing our, you know, our, our total project cost is going up, but so is our GDV. So the returns are actually pretty close to the same. And so what it's done is, is we'd, have, we'd have to go out and raise more. Uh, we just had that on, on a development. Right now we have in Stockport, a great, great property. But we see that the cost of materials has gone up by probably around 10%, uh, which is causing, it doesn't mean the whole build quote goes up by 10%, but it is a, a significant increase. Um, but we were expecting pre all this, we were expecting a GDV of $2 million. With the increase in costs, we needed a a, a valuation of 2.1 for it to go through, and we just got a valuation of 2.3 yesterday. So it, you know sense. it kind of works out on both sides. So as long as you have a financing strategy that doesn't, you know, if the cost goes up by 10%, you're de- you're out. Then then you shouldn't be doing that deal anyway. But because we we have some margin in, and then because values are going up at the same rate or even higher it does compensate. And, and with the tools we have, again, we got 25 sources. If one doesn't work, you can turn to another mm-hmm. and, and help make up the shortfall. So, you know, the one, one, project, you know, we could use the crowd fund and cover 80% of the deal. And then we might use a joint venture investor or another, or a, or a partner investor to come in and cover the rest. That's another, two, you know, we have a lot of different tools to work with.
0: Mm-hmm. And how are you finding your deal pipeline at the moment? Is it as strong as it was pre? pre-COVID or are you finding that there's less deals on the market or more deals on the market? How are you finding it?
1: I would say it's different deals on the market, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Right now we have some very good deals that have been coming to us and coming to our students in, in a lot of like choice locations, like center cities that have been really, really good. Um, but kind of the the, the classic startup properly, the property, the, the, you know, buy a, a property, turn it into an HMO, get the uplift, cash out, they're, they're, they're a little tougher to find right now. So it, it takes you being a little more creative. Honestly, though, i lo- I rather buy something center in a city and take a lower return than invest in the outskirts at a higher return, because I know the deal will be better long term. Uh, but I do know that it depends on where you are on your journey. I'm not chasing cash flow the same way I was before I could quit my job. That then, you know, you're, I, I I went through the same thing as as most people do. Is you know, first step is to build enough cash flow to quit your job. So you might not be saying I want to invest in Birmingham City Center or Manchester City Center or London. Uh, you might say, look, I'll take you know outskirts of Manchester and I'll get a higher cash flow. Those deals are tougher to find, in my experience right now. But if you're looking at the long-term play, which kind of comes in as often the next phase for people, once they have the cash flow, you then go for more capital appreciation, rental appreciation. Just look at a place like Nottingham. Center Nottingham, rents have been going up by about 10% per year the last three years. So you know, even if the return isn't great year one, it's great in three years. So uh, that that value is is really really powerful, and that that is that is those deals are available, but uh, not always what people want to do as their first deal.
0: No, no patience and property is what is needed. Um, final question then: How do we see the market moving forward? What are you excited uh, about? What what do you worry about?
1: Oh, that is such a hard question. I've been I've been talking to a lot of people about this, and we've been. We share with our students, you know, what do we see going on in the market? And the whole way through COVID, I have been expecting a crash to come once the furlough uh, ran out uh, or is running out. But now we see the latest projection says that unemployment will actually not be very different from pre-COVID to post-COVID once furlough stops. So the, the, the government has done that really, really well. And what I was saying the whole way through was they're going to have to play a dance you know as long as they're propping up the market everything will be fine but if they prop it up for too long we're going to start getting rapid inflation and i did not think they were going to be able to prop it up too long enough and we would have a crash but what we're seeing now is it seems like they have market has come back but so far this year we already have 1.6% inflation which means the other side of you know kind of the coin of my either or projection looks like it's coming in and it's coming alive. Though I have to say that the central bank, uh, the, you know, the Bank of England does expect this to just be a short term as things open up because companies are raising prices because people are, are excited to go out and spend money. So this would be a short term inflation. And we don't know if that's you know, calm people down or if it is actually the truth, only time will tell. But with all the quantitative easing going on, I do expect us to go into an infl- uh, inflationary period, probably not as bad as hyperinflation, but still inflation, uh, which is beneficial to property investors. If you own property and you have debt on it, you know, your debt is going to be stable. You have the interest rate, but the value will go up quickly thanks to inflation. So it is a benefit, but it is important to realize that when inflation starts to hit, interest rates start go- to go up. And that can really damage your, your cash flow and even put you in big trouble. So what we're doing, and this is definitely not financial advice, because I, I thought we were going to have a crash and I was super wrong. So I could be super wrong again. I'm, I'm you know No one is an oracle, but I, I expect we're going to have inflation. So what I'm doing on the properties I'm refinancing now is I'm trying to get as long as I can fixed interest. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're, we're refinancing an 11-bed HMO in Prenton we were offered variable rate, a two-year loan or a five-year loan or fixed interest. And we said, look, we're taking five years. You know, yeah. The interest rate is higher, but we're taking five years because within the five years, we expect the interest to go up. Again, mm-hmm. we could be wrong, but honestly, I don't see interest going down much more than it is now. It
0: can't. It can't. <laughs> well, there are
1: parts of the world where we're already at minus, right? Oh, we're at no, minus like 0.25. And once they hit that, honestly, we don't know what the future holds. They've, t- they've crossed that impossible barrier. They could keep going down. And I don't know how an economy with that, with big negative interests would look, but you know, governments can print money as much as they want. So we honestly don't know what's gonna happen. And, but I don't think that's gonna happen, but I don't dare make a prognosis anymore. So I would say, you know, acquire property, that's great. That's an infl- inflationary protection. Make sure though, there could still be a crash. So make sure if values go down by 20%, that doesn't send you to bankruptcy and make sure to cover yourself for interest. You know, I, I'm tying it up as long as I can. Um, now this sounds like very contradictory advice. And I'm, what I'm trying to, I, I listened to a talk from Robert Kiyosaki years ago, just as we were sta- starting out. And he said, most investors treat investing as the flip of a coin meaning either they're right or they're wrong, meaning, you know, either there's inflation and I'm playing that way. But if there comes a crash, I'm out or I'm betting on a crash. If it goes up, then I'm out. What he said is, no, what they forget is that a coin can stand on three sides. It can stand upright as well. And our job is to stand on the top of that coin. And whichever way it drops, we have to put have put ourselves in a position to win, which means Right now, what's going to happen, and what is always going to happen in the market, is the market is either going to go up, it's going to go down, or it's going to go sideways. you got to think through, if it goes up, how do I make myself a winner? Well, that, that one's the easy, because that means you buy property now, and you're with on the ride up. But if it crashes, what do you do then? You have to make sure you don't go bankrupt if it goes down by 20%. And if it's stable, you need to make sure that you're happy with your property, even if values don't go up. Mm -hmm. If you can hit those three points, you'll probably be fine in 99% of all market conditions.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On that note, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I so appreciate it. For everybody who wants to find out more about Daniel, I am going to put the link to Daniel's website below, which will have all of his contact details, all of the ways you can find him on social media, his YouTube channel go follow him. If this has really inspired you, definitely go and have a look at everything he's got to offer. Daniel, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. And I appreciate everyone listening. Thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thank you. And for all of you who are listening, if you've loved this podcast, don't forget to rate and review And also click the subscribe button because you will get a new podcast episode into your feed, wherever you listen, because this is across all platforms every Tuesday morning. Thank you for listening. I cannot wait to catch up with you again